Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. It's Monday morning again, so Tom's two weeks in a row. We're cutting it close on time and knocking this out on Monday morning. But We're going to talk about rice, so Hunter's here and Don's here. Don does have his hat turned around backwards this week, Tom. Which, for those that are avid podcast listeners, would mean that Don is getting into character. Or just Don Cook fans in general. Sure. Don with his hat backwards. Our Northeast Louisiana contingent. Yeah, Don with his hat backwards is a thing. Don's a little stressed right now. Don had some wind at his house last night, so he hadn't had much sleep. Yeah, I I got a wet ceiling from a hole in the roof. And he's going to put a skylight in after this. No, we're gonna put a we're gonna put a blue roof on here shortly. Oh. Nice, yeah. Solar uh, panels. No, <laughs> no, we're we're gonna we're gonna put something to keep water from coming in through the ceiling. He doesn't have a Prius. No, that's just you. Says the guy in a cruise. Sure, mine still runs on gas. Would like to point out, I had to stop and put gas in the Prius this morning, so it does use gas. It's fuel efficient. It's smart. Smart move to come back and forth. Cleveland is not as close as you think it is. I'm actually the only one that does not have a fuel-efficient vehicle. Tom has a Cruze. Hunter has a Prius. Don has a diesel. (laughs) And a 2008 with a V6, too. And I have a gas-guzzling V8. I make up for your gas, Tom. You do, because the 38 or 39 miles per gallon I get is stellar. I did put a set of plugs in my truck back in the spring, though, and the miles per gallon went up by, like, 0.8. <laughs> I'm doing my part. So I guess we're going to skip the question since we had went around about Don's roof and stuff. I didn't have a really good one anyway. That all started from a roof? Yeah. Do we need to come help you, like, get the limb off your roof or something? Oh, the limb rolled over the, over the roof, took the turbine off, and is in the front yard now. There's really nothing on the roof except a hole. But there's limbs in the yard anywhere from the size of your thumb to 12 inches, 14 inches in diameter. It's a mess. We stopped at a gas station yesterday afternoon. And when I came out, Channing was in the back seat crying. I was like, what's wrong with you? And Madison was like, we thought we were going to get blown away there for a second. Apparently, while I was inside, the wind just came out of nowhere and blew the newspaper vending machine across the parking lot and all the signs and... I completely missed everything. It's blowing pretty good outside right now. It is. Yeah. We needed to dry some things out. Dude, we went for four solid weeks with no rain, mm-hmm. and now you're wanting it to dry stuff out. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. <laughs> Sorry. And it still hadn't rained everywhere. I know. All right, Bowman, let's talk about some rice. Sounds good to me. Is Tom going to lead us into it with a question, or are we just going to sure. dive off? I think Don just did. Don did. Well, I'd say most of the rice right now is going to flood or about to go to flood. And that brings in a lot of lot of things to consider. I'd say this is our most time-consuming point in the rice crop as far as making decisions and all the different things that go on and all the different options we have of what we could do at this point. A lot of, you know, fertility and weed control decisions are made right now. The insect stuff is a lot of it you made when you planted, when you made a seed treatment decision. Well, has that carried us to this point with little to no consequence, and now things are starting to pick up, or is there a general insect-related concern moving forward? 
in flood rice, one of our big pests is rice water weevil, and they don't move in until you put water in there. I mean, they lay eggs in after the flood in the, when you have water there until then. You may have some adults moving in and feeding on the leaves, and that's just an indication of potential populations, but they're not really doing anything because those larvae and the eggs have to have water. So that's why we really don't worry about them till you go to flood. Don, is there a management practice that would fit within our system once that seed treatment efficacy wears off the residual from that and we move into a pre-flood situation like we're in right now? Yes, pyrethroids are labeled to treat adults. You know, pre-flood, you get a bunch of scar and see some out there. And I'm fairly sure Belay has a pre-flood application label as well. Those pretty common applications. Many people use those. You get many calls for that particular suggestion at this point. I would say maybe some, but most people are, they just try to run the seed treatment. It was more popular prior to Don's career in rice beginning. He's very conversant in it, but he's only recently taken up the rice game. So, In uh, in, In the past, I was kind of... In a support role. <laughs> but when we... Now you're the you know, lead, the, Bubba. I know it. In the years, and this is many years ago now, but in the years after we lost Icon, yeah. which was the gold standard seed treatment yeah, for weevils, exactly. we used some foliar pyrethroids. The belay pre-flood on the soil surface is pretty new in the last six or yeah, eight years. that's right. But most folks, they'll just ride a seed treatment. Some of the varieties or hybrids have both a neonicotinoid plus fortenza, which is pretty stout treatment. Yeah, it can do much better than that to start with. So then another thing would be delaying your flood, right? If you delay your flood and get more growth on that rice. You've got more root mass so that, you know, they can tolerate the feeding Mm -hmm. more. So that does help. But the other part is, if you think about it, the things we're asking seed treatments to do is just really, really difficult. Three to four weeks dry after it's planted and emerged, and then for another two to four weeks after you flood. So you're looking at asking it to last two months and control these insects for that period of time. Or actually, it's sitting there waiting and degrading until you flood, and then you were expecting it to manage these insects then. There's not too many residuals of anything, insecticide, herbicide, whatever, that's going to offer that length of control. No, no. And then, you know, we've got stuff from when Andrew Adams was doing all of that seed treatment work with the neonicotinoids. The more you flush, the more you reduce that because they're fairly water-soluble and you can move those out as well. And the dry weather we've had has been a problem with that because we've got a field here on the station that we've flushed twice before we flooded just because of how dry it's been. Yeah, anything else related to entomological concerns? Well, right now, that's it. And, you know, they're, they're showing up. We saw some Friday. We saw some adult scarring. Now, more than likely, this is fur-irrigated rice, and it doesn't look like they're going to hold the, quote, flood on the bottom end. But you got on the bottom end where there's a lot of water or in the tire tracks, particularly where the rice was thin. There's one spot, one corner of the field. I got out of the truck, and I could see it from the turn row. And I was hearing about that from Arkansas. But it's not over the entire field. And if you're – depends on how dry you let that field get, you know, in between waterings, it might, 
they may be of no consequence. But they can be in those tire tracks, particularly on heavier ground that's rutted. Yeah, it's a little up in the air. I mean, it depends on how dry you let it get before, you know, you water again. And then the problem with that is, like we've always preached with the herbicides and the fertilizer and nitrogen management, you want to try to keep that ground from getting too dry, too dry because you start to lose efficacy of or nitrogen loss or something like that, which at that time is when we're applying most of our nitrogen so that that rice will start setting in because that's our most efficient timing for that. Don, I sprayed a bunch of pyrethroid on our plots through the years, mm-hmm. and the reason being the last year that I worked in Crowley, I floated some rice. Oh, no roots? Yeah. That would mean, like, walk through the plots and, okay, I got to get out of this plot because I'm kicking rice out of the ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> then, I moved, then I moved to Stoneville. Uh, like, well, I don't care. I'm not doing that again. So we used pyrethroid for many years just as we would do our fertilizer when we would flood up a field. Like, yeah, just go ahead and. Put the pyrethroid on there. It, I mean, it works. It's just the timing window is, is pretty tight. You have to hit it just right. Yeah, it just made me feel better because that's yeah. a, a pretty shocking day. I mean, I was pretty new at the rice deal to start with, and then I walked through plots, and it's, I mean, literally coming up out of the ground in the flood. I'm like, ooh, I yeah. think we did something wrong. No, you had a bunch of larvae out there, and they <laughs> chewed all the roots off. Hunter, you mentioned the other management going on at, at this time timing that we're at now so why don't you expand that a little bit i think what you're leaning into is what i mentioned about fertility and so uh one of the things that i've been pushing a lot is pushing that pre-flood nitrogen rate to really push us to what we think our potential is because that's the best timing to go ahead and set tillers for that plant rick norman did a lot of work at arkansas over his career and basically to sum up what he said and everything he's put out is if you cut that pre-flood nitrogen rate, it's hard to make it up throughout the year with more nitrogen and more applications. Uh, I know one of his papers even pointed out the uh, the use or uptake of nitrogen with like a mid-season shot was a lot less when you put out a lower rate pre-flood, whereas if you push that rate a little bit pre-flood, then you get a lot more efficiency out of those late-season applications. Hunter, you talked about some of the research that really addressed that. What's what's going on right now, though? What are, how are we addressing that particular pre-flood fertility application? So I think a lot of people have heard about and picked up on the fact that that pre-flood is our most efficient time. And so at that point, you know, we get maybe 75% of our nitrogen actually becomes available to the plant and the rice takes it up and we can trace that through the rice through sampling. Once we put that flood on, whereas, you know, in the past we might have done multiple applications into the flood, the problem there is you might have, you know, muddy ground where you haven't actually got the flood established yet when you put that application out. You might have moving water where you're establishing that flood that pushes that urea around or even flying it straight into the water. And that's when we really lose a lot of our efficiency. You know, you cut down to, say, 50% efficiency. So 50% of what you're putting out there is just gone. You're not you're getting nothing from that. So we've started to push towards the more of the pre-flood timing and then just using that mid-season in like a variety or the late boot shot in a hybrid, mainly to ensure milling quality going throughout harvest you know you're not really doing that for yield it's more just locking in what you already have or is a 
safety net. And the crux of it is, Tom, that first yield component for rice is the tiller number. And hopefully this nitrogen application is going out either at the beginning of tillering or early during tillering. So that's going to set that number of tillers. And, of course, the number of tillers most often reflects the or the number of seed heads most often reflects the number of tillers. Not Maybe not every single tiller makes a head, but hopefully most of them do. You'll have some tillers way on down the plant that may not contribute any yield but that's the idea behind it basically if we cut our nitrogen on dry ground before the flood we cut our tillers and cut our yield i'm gonna steal tom's question that he asked and i cut him off earlier contrast this which we've been talking about flooded rice to our row rice as don talked about letting that row rice dry up in between watering intervals the issue there is that a lot of that urea goes out on muddy ground or the soil dries up and we lose a lot of our urea or nitrogen. So we do split it out a little more there. From all the data I've seen, you still want to go with a heavy shot at that tillering stage to go ahead and set those tillers. And this we did this last year and I presented on this quite a bit. But once we set those tillers, we break it out to two more shots and that seems to be the best thing that we've seen so far as opposed to, you know, like a spoon-fed approach where you do 100 pounds for four weeks every week. We set those tillers early with a heavy shot, and then we space it out about two more weeks with another 100 pounds, and then maybe two more weeks or a week and a half with another 100 pounds. Seems to be the best for us so far from all the research that we've generated. And I know me and Jason have talked about this a lot, and he's actually got a grad student now that's going to make this part of his Ph.D. project, trying to figure out the splits a little bit better and seeing are we getting a better tiller set with that heavier rate early, or are we just losing nitrogen because of the drying effect that you have in the row rice? Drew commented, I, I believe, when we did the corn irrigation time, I think we mentioned rice on the backside of that right. podcast <clears throat> we episode. Did. And he mentioned some of Anna's stuff that she's working on, and, and then Hunter alluded to Will Eubanks' project. So we got a lot of stuff going trying to tease out this nitrogen fertilizer management on fur irrigated rice. And I don't think it'll ever be clear going back to all the things that we've talked about on fur irrigated rice. There's just a lot of different systems out there, and you can see that driving around. Hunter, do you feel like with a higher percentage of acres devoted to row rice, fur irrigated rice, have we brought in more varied soil textures? So do we have some on lighter textured soil? I think so. I think a lot of your row rice acres are old cotton ground that has now been soybean or corn ground lately. And I think a lot of your row rice growers are a lot of those types of growers that haven't typically grown rice because they're not set up for levees or something like that. And then this row rice gives them the option to incorporate that into their system without having to go buy a whole bunch of equipment and change the way that they do things historically. You know, you've got a guy that knows how to lay polypipe and water with polypipe. Well, he may not have ever pulled levees or even know where the levees would go in that field or how to set a gate or how to put in gates or you simply don't have the equipment to do that type of stuff. So or I think the, the... Or the labor. The labor, I mean... The row rice makes it a lot simpler for the guy that hasn't typically grown rice to get into rice, and I think that's where a lot of those acres have come from. And I think a lot of the work that 
we've done lately makes me a lot more confident talking to those people about how we should grow row rice. Um, the row rice still scares me because things can go wrong in that situation and you can cut some really bad yields really quickly. Well, and I think you end up, we learn just as much as they learn because it adds an interesting rotational strategy for some of those farmers that you just mentioned, especially if it's traditionally soybeans or cotton that's been grown on that particular ground, <clears throat> just based on soil classification. So we're going to learn just as much as to how that relates to decreasing nematode numbers in some of those particular situations because you've added a completely different crop. But it may also make us learn a little bit more like, well, that's not going to work from that standpoint. We can't expect that to work in the future. And it'll also give them a little bit of a learning curve as well. So it adds an interesting structure to what we're all doing. And you bring up nematodes and soil texture and, you know, maybe sandier soils. A lot of the work we've done on the irrigation timings or Drew and Anna have done so far has been on a pretty heavy clay. So there's a whole other component there. Is that sandier soil going to be able to hold enough moisture? Are we going to have to increase our irrigation timings on that type of soil? And we're going to have to change what we're doing from a fertility standpoint because when Bobby was in your role, he always tried to impress upon me that when you've changed and gone to some of these lighter texture soils, you introduce a whole different set of fertility needs because you're starting to introduce some things that we're not necessarily so accustomed to doing. The other thing is you move into these lighter textured soils, you're going to get into the same issues we have with corn, beans, cotton, is infiltration rate on these you know soils because you know they'll kind of seal off and you don't get good water infiltration. I think that's a fact too, Don. Hunter, when you were on before, I don't remember the number you quoted on just guessing the percent of row rice acres. I think you said like 15 or 20. I, I feel like that's pretty accurate. There's that's some, always been my guess. Yeah, I mean, there's some pretty decent-sized blocks of it in places. And I think the thing that you see, you have to temper your expectation in some situations. For example, Don, you mentioned the ruts with the water weevils. Mm -hmm. I feel like some of these fields, at times, depending on the situation, you got a few more ruts to deal with. The soil texture, that difference from the top of the field to the middle to the bottom is going to be more dramatic, particularly if you get in a case where not necessarily ruts, but it seals off and and you don't get as good an infiltration. So there's trade-offs, which we've outlined and, and gone through over the last three or four years since this system has gained popularity. All that to say, I think it's just a matter of what you're willing to accept. If you want a tabletop, flat, beautiful field, I think that expectation is a little different than not that you can't grow a beautiful tabletop level row rice field, but there are situations where you might not be able to achieve that. You might run into problems that are going to cause issues in different areas in the field, and that's just something you have to be willing to deal with when you go into that system. One thing I've noticed is there's so much more vari variation in this compared to flood rice. You got, you know, where you water it just like beans, where it goes out the end. You got guys that are blocking the pipes off, and then you got different zones you got a flood zone a mud zone and then a fur irrigated zone at the top so there's somebody says 
I got road ice. I said, okay, well, which variation do you have? Because there's many. And I deal with it too. I mean, the questions I get, I don't often have answers for, like Johnson grass. Well, the best solution for Johnson grass is to pull you some levees and flood it deep. Yeah. Well, and it, that may not be in the cards. And, and I've seen people do it. Last year, we saw quite a few fields where they had pulled rows and ran poly pipe, and it looks like they watered it once or twice, and they cut the poly pipe and pulled levees, and the well was running. Well, the other deal, it has implications from the insect management standpoint. If you're going to have, quote, dry ground, you know, that's not saturated all the time, you have the potential of billbug problems. If you have parts that's going to stay muddy to flooded, you have the potential for weevils. And you have that potential of both of those in the same field. Depends on how you manage it. And I think long term... There will be a version of managing some zones through those oh, fields, yeah. and I don't know what that will look like specifically. We've touched on it a little bit, and that's some of the stuff that Anna's doing too in her project is trying to define those zones a little more tightly. But I think we will have an opportunity in the future, whether it's herbicides or insect management or fertility management, we will have some opportunities to split some of those up. Any closing thoughts from y'all? Don, any take-home messaging about insect concerns right now? Uh, earlier on, we now this is not guaranteed, but early on we had a lot of rice stink bugs in wheat and in ryegrass. Will that translate into rice stink bug problems in, in rice? Maybe, maybe not. You don't make hard predictions, but I would be prepared to deal with them, and I would suspect our pyrethroid issues will be greater than they were last year. Hunter, closing comments on fertility, water issues? Just rice in general. You know, we were still planting rice this time last year. I think this was the last day we planted any in Tunica County. Most of the rice now is going to flood, so it looks a lot better than it did last year. Thank you all. Good to see you both this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.